I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Zooming In at the Unpopulist. My guest today is Eve Fairbanks, author of The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's racial reckoning. Our conversation explores the complex history of post-apartheid race relations in South Africa, how it complicates simplistic narratives, and what lessons Americans should draw as we seek to address our own country's racist history. I want to start with a striking line from the excerpt from your book that we published at The Unpopulist. You write, Over the 12 years I spent there, I found almost nobody in South Africa was having the experience of the post-apartheid country that I imagined they'd be having. What do you mean by that? There were a lot of paradoxes um, about the the aftermath period after the end of apartheid, which, you know, sometimes I, I feel, not for maybe people who are extremely well-read, but we're a little stuck in the U.S. on the Mandela, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the kind of, that the story wrapped in this fairly neat way in the 90s. And um, I'll just talk about two examples of that. Um, I found a great number of white South Africans, um, very, like, it was almost psychologically impossible to accept that they'd really been forgiven, to believe it, and to not believe that resentment would rise, that, you know, at some point soon or down the line, there would be a kind of more material retribution. There seemed to be very little. So, so, you know, you had this idea that there, there was this wonderful situation in which a powerful group, a powerful minority wielding regime semi-voluntarily gave up power um, and that those that they had oppressed chose to live with them together in a kind of multiracial democratic and to treat them as equals and to, you know, not exact any kind of revenge. And, and to a large degree, that has happened. Um, you know, there hasn't been a kind of mass land expropriation in South Africa or other types of retribution that are material against white South Africans in a on mass way. But it's so hard. It's almost so hard for people to live with that reality. And I, I think we can talk if if you're interested in why I started to believe that is because. You know, I thought, gosh, it, people could be living more, more, not comfortable, more um, calm, or you know, they could just feel better if they, if they believe that their neighbors are well, well uh, disposed toward them, and and they're very afraid. And but you know, what, why, what makes that belief sort of satisfying to hold or necessary to, to hold, and then. Black South Africans, I think, um, they did not realize, both because it was concealed from them and out of a kind of denial and wishful thinking that that many or normal people and leaders ad- admitted to me that they were not coming into a promised land out of, you know, 40 years in Sinai suffering and then coming into a land you know, where there would be divisions and 
and uh, disagreements within the community, but at least the place would be fertile and like a nice kind of starting point. Um, they were, they had effectively won like a, a very dysfunctional state that was on the verge of bankruptcy in the early 1990s, um, which many even high up didn't know the extent of that. So, and, and had a kind of deep rooted corruption in the bureaucracy. And um, yeah, I make an analogy in, in the book, I forget if it was in the piece, but that it was like, as if they were kind of being told by history and by the world and by analysts that politically speaking, they had won this great thing, this great prize, this wonderful country that now they were going to get to run, but also they would be tested. You know, it's going to be a bit scrutinized to see if this was really going to, they were really going to manage it. When in reality, it was like being sold a used car that was like right on the verge of just totally breaking. And yet that they had suffered so much and paid so much for this vehicle that they kind of had to convince themselves that it really was of great value. I mean, you get a lot of um, a very striking degree of quite open self-contempt and within the black community in South Africa, kind of real, um, you'll hear things like, I think it's turned out that maybe black Africans just can't run a modern state or things that are sort of shocking for an American, you know, coming over. And, but I think part of that is it's so important to believe that this state could still have a ton of potential. Cause then if you just got people into power who could do better, it could really, um, you know, fulfill a lot of its people and give them satisfying lives. It's harder in a way to, to acknowledge yeah, we were kind of saddled with this thing that was actually kind of terrible. I, this almost seems like a perfectly charged situation for the construction and maintenance of like self-serving narratives or conflicting narratives. And so I want to, like when you talk about the reaction of the white South Africans um, and this this expectation of things, of, of land appropriations, of expropriations, of just backlash that didn't seem to come, uh, and, and the black South Africans taking over this thing and not, not engaging in that kind of activity. How much of that was so? Like on the on, well, let's start with the the white South Africans. A like genuine fear, right? Like I have a fear that we have we have perpetuated this tremendous injustice upon these another group for decades, a, a monstrous evil, um, and and it's perfectly reasonable to think that the people who are the victims of that are going to be pretty mad about it and may act in angry ways right um so like a kind of an external fear versus a i have tremendous guilt over what i have participated in and so am am almost wanting like the the cathartic cleanse of that backlash and so it's not 
it's it's almost like a level of disappointment that these people aren't acting in the way that like I think they to some extent deserve to act towards me. I mean, the latter sounds very paradoxical, but I t- it totally totally exists here. So there's maybe three types of fear. The first is you know. Um, people who grew up white in in South in apartheid South Africa were just inundated with uh, this, the the apartheid state called black South Africans terrorists. So imagine you are now living in a state run by people that you grew up being taught in school were terrorists. It's like that exists. I mean, that's quite visceral. Um, it doesn't matter if you're progressive or you know that's a quite deep seated thing. Then there's um, a more kind of logical fear, like the one you laid out, like it stands to reason that, you know, these people would um, would want want more out of us, want to take, you know, take more. Um, but then the final thing, you know, I noticed it both in South African literature, uh, white written by white South Africans, post-apartheid literature, that... There's a huge theme. There's often a plot point three quarters of the way through the book where a white character is violently dispossessed of stuff. I mean, the Jam Kutsia book famously includes a, a sort of sexual assault, like a kind of seizure of even agency over one's own body. Um, but but there'll be a home invasion, so where uh, black robber burglars enter your house and it, you, you're basically being violated. And and very often a theme of these books is a sense of relief that the character feels afterward. A mix, a kind of mix of, and at, at sort of finally, finally the equation has, has kind of been solved. There's not these hanging variables. Like finally, finally this thing that I now I'm just living in fear of, at least it's just happened and we got it over with. And in fact, that probably honestly is what we deserved. And now we can just go on without, um, I'll just say last, I mean, there are two, two people who were not right, who were real people who talked to me at great length with one of them about the feeling of burden of being forgiven in that, he experienced black forgiveness or politeness toward him or leaving him alone in his house as a subtle way of suggesting of kind of proving that they were better than than whites because you know while white people when they were in power had kind of violently dispossessed black people forced relocations forced segregation took property took land we won't do that we won't we will be we will rise above we're better than you and that he had to walk around now you could say that's a kind of uh sour way of thinking about what they did but that was what that what he experienced forgiveness as burdensome and that he actually would rather be um attacked he he began to look for examples of black people who seemed to be ill disposed toward him and and you know attacking him in meetings or you know saying he's a racist. He was really looking for those in a sense. And 
I also do think, I mean, even progressive white South Africans, of which there were a number, a flourishing community under apartheid who really resist, you know, were part of the anti-apartheid movement, often at great cost to themselves. They partly, part of their story was that this was about power and that, um, you know, white people had too much power and then uh, went, you know, this is just what happens. This is the way that they behaved, the the fear of the other, the dispossession. And if the next group to gain power does not act in the same ways or acts very differently, especially toward you, it makes you look worse in retrospect. It kind of rewrites and recasts your own past in a more negative light. And I think people really struggle with that. Um, there's a huge, somebody told me point blank that um, he he just wished, he and his wife just wished that that black South Africans would get it over with <laughs> by which he meant creating a more materially equal society. You know, they were living in this kind of manse that they'd fortified in the capital with lasers and spikes on the walls and it's a four bedroom house and they had their cars inside and they'd done a lot of work and they'd invested a lot into protecting their, their property and their position. And he said, you know, my wife in particular would never admit that, that we don't ever, ever admit that, that we feel at all uncomfortable about what we have. We're in our 30s. You know, we can tell a story about how we, too, grew up after apartheid. We earned this. But for me, honestly, I, I just I'm so uncomfortable. I'm so unhappy in a way that I just wish the leveling would just be gotten over with. And I thought it was really fascinating. I mean, it's it's something that has the potential to explain you know, some types of reactions, I think, but also I was always looking um, in the excerpt that you published uh, and, and the book itself to to talk even at length with, with friends that I made and try to draw out kind of layers of feelings behind, in some cases, a more simplistic kind of superficial, um, oh, you know, I'm a white South African and I now feel that it's reverse apartheid and I'm oppressed and I... You know, the, there were a lot of people that were too smart to have that be their only belief, you know. On the other side of things was the lack of widespread retribution, the getting it over with on the part of the black South Africans, which again would have – most of us would think would have been a reasonable – response, or at least an understandable response, um, was the lack of that coming from this moral high ground position, um, as as you said, some of the white South Africans kind of believed it was, or was it more of a tactical strategic choice where we've been handed this, as you called it, this, this used car that's barely holding together, engaging in that kind of behavior, even if we want to do it is just going to make things worse. You know, we're, we're going to throw a wrench into an already barely functioning car. And so we're going to hold off because of that. I think there's a lot of the latter. I think there's the feeling like you're, you know, driving a thing that's 
where the door is taped on and one family member's kind of holding one door on and another's got a hand into the wheel well. And if one person moves in any direction, the whole thing will just come apart. Um, there is that, that fear, um, and that, and, and that's strategic feeling. There's a guy named Tokyo Sehwale who said, who's a big, uh, anti-apartheid activist in the eighties, um, who became an African national Congress leader. Um, and he famously kind of begged white South Africans not to leave in the late nineties. And he said, you know, when we'll become a banana Republic is when you go, please don't leave. And so there were a lot of, um, I don't want to say even chits thrown, but there was a lot just on the political side from the government itself, a lot of strategy and tactics around we, they still hold most of the capital and this, the country will become much poorer if, if, if we don't make it seem like a place where they can live and flourish. Um, <clears throat> I also found there was a level of kind of self-policing um, and, and wanting to sustain. One of the interesting things about the post-apartheid period in South Africa is seeing a group of people that really only had an identity ever through a shared experience of resistance to oppression um, and, and being in a, in a, in a, not a victim mode, but of resisting oppression from below because there was no such thing as a black South African before white, the white regime categorized them that way in laws that dispossessed them. So that, that whole nation or that identity group only exists for that. And, and to, to kind of see uh, a group like that grappling with how to, how to deal with having power is really fascinating. And you find a discomfort in giving up what had grounded a, a, an identity and a kind of self-policing. So Every so often here, you'll get some incident where one in particular, there was a real estate agent who was very well known, who posted kind of a very racist, just really outrageous, like monkey laden screed on Facebook. And she was stripped of her license. She was actually charged with, with something. But there was a lot of kind of self-policing among Black South Africans to not be horribly rude to her. Because that's what they do. That's what they did. We're better than that. You know, we're, um, we're more humane. We're more complex. We're more humane. Um, you know, we don't, we're, we don't make fun in that way. But finally, you know, the, the, the level of internalized racism that persists here is quite extreme. Um, the kind of honor that's afforded at baseline to white South Africans by black South Africans there was a little story of a, of a white, a white guy, a white Af Afrikaner guy who moved to a township for a month and blogged about it. And one of the interesting things in his blog was he really struggled to get to work at his like investment bank in a very rich suburb of Johannesburg because the apartheid state had never built transit connections between like these poor black neighborhoods and an investment bank. There are ones, but that that janitors use that are really, really, really crappy. 
and he 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 was really surprised that his black neighbors felt so sad for him that he had to use this crappy mass transit because it was okay or it was it was un, you know it was um Black people had been using that for ages, but there was something that to them felt very pathetic and pitiable. They felt pity that a white man who should be in a nice, decent car had to be. It sounds strange, but he said they would say, uh, Mungu, which is white person, it's such a shame, you know, we're really sorry. And this is quite sincere, you know, just you shouldn't you shouldn't have to suffer like that. And I ended up, you know, there's something quite touching about that, but it also comes from a kind of a dark source, which is a whole lot of ideas about, you know, who deserves to be sitting in a, a nice car. So I think that that all of that is in play. How has, obviously, 1994 and earlier, it was a explicitly racist regime and country. Uh, how has racism shifted within the country in the years since? Like, is it, are, are racial attitudes getting better or are they evolving? There's a story in the excerpt about a, I think it's a, a farmer who mentions being worried about how racist his son appears to be. And he, he explicitly expresses worry about the younger generation seems to be backtracking. Is that is that a widespread problem? It's interesting because it's sort of possible to see it from two angles. Like if you think of racism as a statue, you can look from the back and you can look from the front. I mean, sometimes I think about, you know, I'll go to my husband's uh, workplace where he has black colleagues, and he's actually like a service provider, prints photographs for black artists. So there's a relationship that would not really have existed under apartheid at all, um, where you have a white service provider to black clients. And I mean, not him in particular, but it's just, if you if you think, if you look at even photographs from the late 1980s, and you think about how really recent that is. And... Um, it's just incredible montages, incredible realities. And in some ways, how much the society was able to leave behind, given how extreme the, you know, in, in 1986, you were not permitted legally to have sex with a person of a, another race. And now you have all kinds of, in, you know, interracial marriages and, and, um, beloved black figures like the captain of the South African national rugby team, who's been entirely accepted by these kind of thick country hick types, you know, proud, like, you know, and they love him. The other side are things that are... <sighs> complex and almost, you know, they come up in surprising ways. There's a lot of incidents here, many, many, many incidents, increasing number of police brutality. And the officers will almost always be black. However, these incidents will bear just a, a resemblance that's undeniable to 
people who grew up here to to police brutality under apartheid that was perpetrated. But the perpetrators are now black. But almost everyone here would 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 feel somehow there's ideas about you know how you treat a black suspect or a poor you know black suspect and that have carried over even if the perpetrator is of a different color. So it, it starts to get more complicated in that way. And I think um, among whites, among young white South Africans, there is a, um, a group that has found it, they've embraced the idea, um, oddly enough, that they're, the idea of their own oppression and victimhood. So there's this sense that um, an oppressed people triumphed in South Africa and that in some way morally, the moral context of the country is positive around, um, you know, giving more rights to those who are oppressed. And so there's this whole kind of discourse of like canceled and oppressed young white people that that has become very hip in a way that has like some... I don't know. I find, when I come back to the U.S., I live in South Africa, but I'm, I spend two or three months in the U.S. every year. I've, there's something also in the U.S. that reminds me of that—a kind of this slight Andrew Tate, like you're very good with TikTok, but you also, you know, say that that you're you're a profoundly oppressed and canceled white person. So, you know, these things are kind of shape shifting in these in in really interesting ways. They don't die easy. I want to pick up on that in the the minutes that we have left that because as I was reading your article the the parallels to a lot of the way that racial and racist culture and politics sociology within the US seems to be playing out was striking and and at one point you mentioned that you know South Africa plays for in a lot of people's minds this called instructive and archetypal role as you know here's here's an instance of this caste system being overthrown and how it plays out and and to some extent what you're doing is complicating the archetypally instructive nature that people imagine it to have um and so looking at the United States what what lesson should we on on this side of the pond draw from the the South African experience, particularly the more complicated version of it that that you present? You know, I see in a lot of conversations in the U.S. the implication. It's not always explicitly stated, but the implication that demographic change. Um, is kind of an in institutions is like let's say you uh you want a less racist let's posit that your goal is a you know a not racist society or one that that's that's more equitable or or free or whatever and that you would at least want maybe a proportional demographics or you'd 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 look at getting you know making sure that institutions reflect their communities um I think a big lesson of South Africa is that really is not an end point. You know, the South African government now entirely reflects the demographics on a provincial, on like a state provincial level and nationally. And the people who are in power look like the ordinary voter. And 
it constantly finds itself, sometimes without even really meaning to, um, replicating or recapitulating um, kind of apartheid era type behaviors. Or so uh, that that's a huge lesson, and and also that you know. Um, when people, when people's position within a society changes, I think they don't feel um, the same way as they did when they were in the previous position. Now, I know like what I just said sounds totally obvious. And yet I think it's kind of hard for us to fully accept that, you know, once, let's say, you know, if, if America had... Um, Supreme Court with six people of color, or if, you know, white Americans of a certain type, women, or, you know, end up feeling like they're declining economically or, or just squeezed in various ways, that they'll carry with them the feelings that they just had due to their kind of identifying label. And the, the feelings and the goals and the ideas that they have about how to change society or whatever. And and people really don't. Their 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 ambitions and shift um, as their sort of demographic and and kind of social position shifts. And I think South Africa shows that in in really 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 complex ways. But one of the things that the just the, as the last point that that I learned in South Africa again and again was how much I myself underestimated how how little demographic change really alters things in the way I would have expected and how much it does in other ways. I mean, I just I really realized how many assumptions that I hadn't even, um, I don't know, like grappled with that I kind of carried with me about, you know, what will happen when this is the student body or, and, you know, pe people can have both fears about that and anticipation and it just it doesn't doesn't turn out how you, you expect at all when you have this type of almost power reversal thank you for listening to zooming in at the unpopulist if you enjoy this show please take a moment to review us in apple podcasts and also check out reimagining liberty our sister podcast the unpopulist where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist. <laughs>